Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, everyone. This is the History Hit Warfare podcast, and I'm your host, James Rogers. Every week, twice a week, I bring you brand new military histories that stretch from the Napoleonic campaigns through to the War on terror if you come here often and you like what you hear then drop us a five-star review on apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts it only takes a second and it really helps us to get out there to everyone who loves history in this episode we are talking about one of the most daring stories of the second world war the heroes of telemark when commandos attempted to stop the nazi nuclear bomb project to take us through this history and the daring feats of the norwegians at vermork we have pulitzer finalist and new york times best-selling author arthur herman who has written a new book the viking heart how scandinavians conquered the world and well the heroes of telemark are most certainly some of these Scandinavians with a Viking heart. Enjoy. Hi Arthur, great to have you on the History Hit Warfare podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing well and it's uh, delighted to be on with you. Well, we're delighted to have you here. Where are you talking to us from in the world? I am based in Washington, D.C. at a think tank called the Hudson Institute, which was started by Herman Kahn in 1963. And uh, for a long time, it was based up in New York, in New York State, and then for a period of time in Indiana. And then it became clear in the 1980s and 1990s that if we wanted to have any kind of real influence on national policy, particularly in the area that is of great interest to me, which is national policy and technology, that the place to be based was Washington and our nation's capital. So our office is now overlooking Pennsylvania Avenue, a 10-minute walk to the White House from here. There you go. You're with arm's reach of policy. And Herman Kahn, of course, that was his core area, was to work on technology and national security, working on strategy and the nuclear bomb. A man who, I think it's fair to say, 
didn't pull many punches. So I was, when I was doing my PhD and I was going through the archives on American nuclear strategy, I just found these amazing conversations. I say conversations, he didn't really let the other side speak too much. These amazing dictations at American generals when he was at the Rand Corporation, where he was telling them that they, <laughs> he was telling them they didn't have a war plan, they had a wargasm because General Curtis LeMay and General Power wanted to send a shed load of nuclear weapons all at once if they were ever triggered by the Soviets. And he thought this was just a, a mad plan within American nuclear strategy. I think the mutually assured destruction doctrine, which was actually adopted, I think, largely as a way in which to save money as well as save thought about the threat of nuclear deterrence. Well, in other words, if the Soviets strike first, we just hit them with everything else and everybody's wiped out. That should be sufficient deterrent to prevent anyone from firing a nuclear weapon at any time in any place. Khan was always impatient with this in a variety of ways. One was he felt that it was an unrealistic approach, as you know, because you studied Khan, and so you know where his notion of nuclear deterrence took him, which was that there are many situations in which the ladder of escalation will take you up to using non-nuclear force. And then the question is, where's the threshold at which the threat of nuclear weapons becomes a means by which to de-escalate a crisis or a confrontation with the Soviet Union as opposed to one that would necessarily precipitate the end of civilization as we now know it. The other aspect, which I don't think a lot of people are aware of with regard to Khan, they'll talk about it, but it was an important chapter in his book, Thinking About the Unthinkable, which was about nuclear warfare, nuclear policy, was about civil defense. And this was also an aspect of deterrence that even in the throes of being subjected to a massive nuclear, even thermonuclear attack, to what degree could you protect uh, the civilian population or key aspects of the infrastructure from total destruction? It's a notion that seems very far-fetched now. You may not be old enough, but I'm old enough to remember uh, <laughs> being in schools in which certain portions of the school basement were set aside for as nuclear shelters in the case of the unthinkable, in fact, became real. It seems like a quaint kind of an undertaking or even a slightly chilling one. I mean, how many people will survive a nuclear weapon? But it was definitely something in Khan's mind. And I guess we just are all extremely thankful that whatever else happened, that we were never in a situation in which to test the aspect of how you protect civilian populations from on nuclear attack. The issue has never arisen. Let's hope it doesn't. Now, we're on dangerous territory here, Arthur, because I can talk about Herman Kahn, American nuclear strategy, the Rand Corporation, Wallstatter, Brody, Kaufman, everyone. I can talk about them all day and night. Ask my colleagues, ask my friends. But we're not here to talk about that. Well, we kind of are here to talk a little bit about some atomic aspects but we'll come to that in a moment because you have a new book out it's called viking heart how scandinavians conquered the world and it is a, a rip-roaring foray through heroic battles sea adventures empires rising and falling and voyages of discovery so let me start by asking you because i'm sat here in denmark i work in denmark so i've got to ask you what is it about the scandinavians that got you obsessed enough to write a book about it Obsessed enough to write my 10th book as well. I mean, I've written on a variety of other topics, including the British Navy. I've written the biography of Douglas MacArthur, who's not Scandinavian at all. A book called How the Scots Invented the Modern World, which was New York Times bestseller. 
a dual biography of Gandhi and Churchill, which was a Pulitzer Prize finalist. And what really got me going on this was my uncle, my uncle Norman, whose parents and my mother's parents had come over from Norway to America just before World War I, and who was raised in a household in which there was a fierce devotion to America as their adopted home, but also at the same time, equally fierce regard for their former homeland, for the old country, as it's called, and for Norwegian relatives and staying in touch and so on. So when the How the Scots Invented the Modern World came out, it was a New York Times bestseller. My uncle Norman said to me, that's great. So you've done it now for the Scots. What about the Vikings? And I had to think, stop and think about that because they were not on my radar screen at that point. This was 20 years ago, mind you. But it sort of planted a seed in my head. And then when Gandhi and Churchill was one of the three finalists for Pulitzer Prize, my uncle said, well, congratulations. Now what are you going to do about the Vikings? And so the seed began to sort of sprout and grow from that, sort of emerge out from the topsoil about what was I going to do with this topic, which was obviously of great interest. And clearly, in my uncle Norman's case, he wasn't just thinking about a book about the Vikings per se, although that would have been very interesting for him. He really wanted something that was going to talk about the Norwegian-American experience, talk about the place of Norway in the course of European history, world history, and so on. And it wasn't until I was able to take that, that aspect of his insistence on a book on the Vikings and expand it from a simple ethnic chauvinism about Norwegians are great and Norwegian-Americans are even greater to expand it into something that really would talk about the entire Scandinavian experience in two ways. Number one, as part of the Viking Age, in which although we see three very distinct communities and ultimately three distinct kingdoms emerging, Denmark, Norway, and Sweden, there are broad common characteristics and experiences for all three of those groupings including at the time of the Viking Age, a common language, namely Old Norse, but also to talk about the Scandinavian-American experience and the way in which immigrants from those three countries, as well as immigrants from Finland, and even the small but significant minority of immigrants who come from Iceland, and the way in which they became part of the American experience and became contributors to the shaping of American history, the shaping of the American experiment in democracy and so on. But at the same time in which I was able to come up then with a book that would have this sort of grand plan behind it, talking about the Vikings and the aftermath in Scandinavia, talking about the immigration to America from Scandinavia, it was also, I felt, incumbent on me to talk about the ways in which the cultural skill set, as I call it, that the Scandinavians inherited from that original Viking legacy, the skill set that I call the Viking heart. That's the source of the title, the Viking heart, meaning the set of characteristics that make Scandinavian culture from the Viking period on so distinct, and one could argue really significant and important in the shaping of not just Scandinavia, but a world history of how that skill set plays out in Scandinavia in the 20th century and even up to the present. And so the final chapters of the book bring us from, we start in the Scandinavia with the Viking Age, we move to America in the 19th, 20th century, early 20th century, with the story of the Viking hardships back to Scandinavia 
and the way in which, although modern Scandinavians in the 20th century bear very little resemblance in terms of manners, shall we say, of their Viking forebears, but that there were certain experiences in the 20th century that test their mettle, shall we say, to see to which they're able to draw upon their, if you like, Viking roots, their Norseman roots, in order to deal with the stresses and challenges that they face. And the chapter, therefore, that I did on the Viking heart in Scandinavia in the modern age deals specifically with the experience of World War II and the way in which these three countries, Denmark, Sweden, and Norway, but also Finland, we can't leave that out of the story, have to deal with the rise of these two great totalitarian powers on their borders. On the one hand, the Soviet Union, but then also the one I think most people think about when they think about Scandinavia during World War II, namely the rise of Nazi Germany. Yes, and it's that that we've got you on the podcast to talk about today. I love this idea of a Viking heart. Living here, I would say there's two things that probably remain of that. The strangest thing is that when you go to the pub, there's a row of baby carriages, of prams outside with the babies in because the mums and dads are inside and the babies are left outside to be nice and swaddled and warm but breathing that cold air to get their lungs nice and strong. So that might link into some way to what we're about to talk about. And then um, they don't half know how to drink as well, Arthur. I mean, I'm British. I can drink. But the Danes, whew, try and keep up with them. It's uh, And maybe it's to keep the blood warm. Yes, the English are not famous as teetotals. <laughs> but it is interesting to see you put through your paces in comparison with your Danish neighbours. <laughs> yeah. Set aside the drinking for a moment. But what you're talking about with regard to the swaddle babies left outside the pub points to two things, doesn't it? On the one hand, at one level is the question, it's cold. And Scandinavia has always been a profoundly inhospitable environment for human habitation. By the way, one of the important aspects of Scandinavian history is no one wants to conquer them. No one wants to go there unless they're absolutely forced to. I mean, the modern age with modern heating and so on, that has been possible, as you see with immigrant groups who've arrived, particularly in Sweden and Norway. But up until the arrival of modern electricity and modern heating systems, nobody in their right mind would move there. Most sensible people move out. And that's been a large part of the history of Scandinavian as a Scandinavian diaspora that starts even before the Viking Age that begins with the Germanic tribes who moved out from southern Scandinavia, particularly from the area we call Schleswig and Holstein, there, southern Denmark, who spread out across northern Europe because, good heavens, the conditions were so much better for establishing communities and families, not just in terms of climate, but also in terms of arable land, very scarce in Scandinavia, more so in Denmark than the other three Nordic countries, but still, it's not great. It's not an advantage that you have in other parts of Europe, or again, as Danish immigrants would find when they came to America. But that inhospitable environment is one that tests your skills for survival, but above all else, tests the ability for group survival. That in this kind of inhospitable environment, survival of the individual depends on survival of the group. Everyone must work together. Everyone must cooperate together. There's a sense of community that's built in those sorts of conditions, those sorts of extreme conditions, that is a very powerful cultural as well as social and economic bond 
working together to make a living, working together to stay warm, build houses, build villages, to engage in fishing expeditions, fishing boats, and so on. It's all communal enterprise. But, and this is an important point too, isn't it? When we think about those prams outside the pub door, another founding principle is the issue of trust. That with the strong bond of community, of the loyalty comes the sense of trust. That you can count on the other members of the community doing their fair share of the hard work that's involved so that where everyone is comfortable sharing the fruits of their labor. And at the same time, a trust that each will look out for the others as well. That you can leave a pram outside with your baby outside, go inside and know that your child is safe. How many other countries in the world would you be able to have that kind of confidence that your child is safe and that those around you are watching out for your child as much as you are. In fact, the Danes have a word for this, don't they? Which is Samsungfund, which is social mindedness, right? That when you think about yourself, you're also thinking about others and your connection with others. And that's an important virtue, not just in Danish culture, but in Nordic culture as a whole. And it's rooted, I think, in the environment in which that kind of bond of trust, that sense of community built around the value of trust and mutual confidence, everyone will carry their fair share. It dates back to the Vikings, and even before, of course. But it's in the Viking age that it really comes into its own efflorescence. So take us through then, because these values, these core parts, like you say, these Viking hearts of what it means to be Scandinavian, they're important. But why do they become important to the story we want to tell today, which is about the heroes of Telemark? Well, it's important for two reasons. One is... That, and here we have to say that there's lots of other histories which is built around communal solidarity. This is not an extraordinary, a unique phenomenon to the Scandinavian world, or even to modern Scandinavians, that sense of mutual trust. is built into any number of communities. It's built into the whole notion of tribal identity, after all, which sometimes gets a bad name in our world, but sometimes I think we recognize the value of being able to count on others to stand up for you and to protect you and your offspring in an emergency, that sense of trust that tribal bonds are built around and are secure that an anthropologist or sociologist would identify. But there's also another aspect of this in Nordic culture, which is there's also a recognition that the community may not survive unless individuals are going to be free to go out and look for and take risks in order to bring back the commodities or bring back the skills or bring back what's needed in order for the community to survive and prosper. And of course, that was the case paradigmatically with the Vikings, wasn't it? Those Viking voyages, those setting off in their longships every spring from the fjords in Denmark and Sweden and Norway, setting out to venture forth and to prey upon Scandinavia's neighbors. This wasn't just simply a thrill ride. This was what was brought back. The connections that were built were fundamental to making the community survive in that kind of harsh environment with so few meager resources. So you have this balance, don't you? And this is part of the most important points of the book, I think. The balance between, on the one hand, communal solidarity, the recognition of how important that is, the bonds of loyalty and trust that enable the community to survive and prosper. But at the same time, recognizing the individuals have to be free to take risks, have to be free to venture out even into the unknown in order to benefit the community. 
And so what you have is, on the one hand, this bedrock of communal solidarity, cultural solidarity, but also at the same time, you have this belief in heroic endeavor of individuals setting out to take on enormous risks in order to benefit the whole. And boy, if that doesn't fit the group that we call the heroes of Telemark, then my God, I don't know what does. So who were the heroes of Telemark? Tell us all about them. The story revolves around what happened after the Nazi occupation of Norway, when individuals who were working at the hydroelectric facility far up in the north in Norway, at Vermark, were finding out that there was increasing interest on the part of German military figures and German scientists in one of the industrial byproducts of what they were doing up at Vermark at the facility, which was the creation of deuterium, what we call heavy water, which is basically hydrogen atoms with an extra electron attached to it comes to be called heavy water because of that extra electron. And as they began to sort of speculate and think about why is it that suddenly the Germans are ordering more and more of this stuff? No one else wants this. I mean, it's an industrial byproduct. It's very expensive, has very few commercial applications, and yet the Germans can't seem to get enough of this stuff. And so a conversation with one of the foremen working there with a friend of his who happened to have a degree in nuclear physics, provided the answer. And that was, is that his friend explained to him that during his studies at the University of Cambridge, the great father figure of nuclear physics in England, Lord Rutherford, had said that precisely this kind of heavy water would make an excellent medium for slowing down a nuclear fission process. Nuclear fission being the chain reaction that would be set in motion if you were to split an atom and its multiple electrons would then go split other atoms and set off a chain reaction, which would ultimately lead to, if left unchecked, would lead to a nuclear explosion of a, a destructive force of a kind that would be unimaginable to anyone except perhaps uh, Alf, uh, Albert Einstein with his E equals MC squared, that the energy released to this would be equal to the square of the speed of light, unimaginable power, unimaginable destructive power. But if you could slow that chain reaction down and control it, then it would be something that would not be a runaway chain reaction, but one that could be used for a variety of purposes, one of which would be to create a weapon so that that uncontrollable chain reaction could be controlled and set off and detonated at a particular time and place that strategy or a military operation demanded. What caused the anarchy? How did medieval migrants shape the language I'm speaking right now? Who won the Hundred Years' War? Could England's lost patron saint be buried under a tennis court in Suffolk? How did England's last medieval king end up under a car park? And were the Dark Ages really all that dark? I'm Dr Kat Jarman. And I'm Matt Lewis. On Gone Medieval, we'll uncover the most exciting and unexpected stories about the Middle Ages, hearing from the best and brightest minds. We will disentangle fact from fiction, bring you the latest discoveries, and reveal how the so-called Dark Ages laid the foundations for much of the world we're living in today. Subscribe to Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts.
Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. So Hitler may not have wanted to go and live and work up in a frigid Norway, but he certainly needed Norway for the production of heavy water and to help Heisenberg's attempts to try and make a nuclear bomb. Well, we can debate whether or not Heisenberg ever actually attempted to make a weaponized nuclear technology. His discussions with the Dane Niels Bohr certainly seem to show a resistance to create nuclear weapons, the first atomic bomb. But either way, it's not exactly something that we want to get into Hitler's hand. So when do the British first find this out and start to take some countermeasures? The issue really becomes a hot button one from the point of view of where Britain is now thinking about, are the Germans really thinking about creating a nuclear weapon? England and the United States had already reached an agreement to work together on such a technology. The first experiments with controlling a nuclear fission reaction were already underway in the United States under the watchful eye of Enrico Fermi at the University of Chicago. The Manhattan Project would soon follow. The danger was, what if Nazi Germany manages to get the bomb before we do? And would this sort of super weapon in the hands of the hands of the Nazis be one that would have a decisive effect on the course of the war? So the English become very much alarmed about this. And the question is what to do about it. And the ability to get into Germany to find out what kinds of nuclear experiments or facilities are there. It's a highly problematic one. It's a super secret project, obviously, that the Nazis are engaged in. That it's the most logical way in which to stop or at least slow down the German nuclear weapon program would be to cut off their supply of heavy water. And the way in which to do that was to stop the shipments and shut down the facility at Vermont in its production, not of electricity per se, but of the work on this industrial product, namely the heavy water. 
Am I wrong in thinking that one of the initial ways they attempted to shut down this plant and stop the production of heavy water was through air power? Didn't they try and bomb these into a state at which they were just completely unworkable? Well, I think the strategic bombing idea comes a little bit later. The first idea was to send in commandos. And so the very first group was English commandos. After all, you know, they had set up a whole series of commando operations and commando units that were underway. So the idea was we will airlift, right, by glider, a team of English commandos into Vermark, and they'll figure out a way in which to sabotage the plan. Well, it was a complete fiasco. The weather was not cooperative. It never is in Norway with any kind of plans and operations. The group that was sent over there, their plane crashed. The commandos who weren't killed in the crash were then either shot or put to death by the Nazis. It was a big failure. So what do we do next? Well, what it became clear was is that if English commandos can't pull this off, maybe Norwegian ones can. And maybe they'll have both the know-how in terms of understanding the terrain and even the FOMORC facilities itself, because they had on part of their Norwegian contingent, the company Linge, as it was called, named after one of the Norwegian resistance leaders, that the company Linge had members who had worked at FOMORC and had been part of the plant, had been engaged in work there. So they knew the plant layout. They knew where the different facilities were, which would have to be sabotaged. If we could get them in there, then maybe we've got a chance to shut down the plant. And so a band of Norwegian commandos was recruited to go and to set off, to be airdropped onto the incredibly even for Norwegians, inhospitable terrain surrounding Fermark in order to set up a base there and then ultimately to carry out a sabotage operation at Fermark. So this makes perfect sense. Utilise that local knowledge, that Viking spirit, the skills that you get from a very young age, not only, of course, your ability to survive in the cold, but your skiing, your cold weather skills, your survival skills, everything it means to be Norwegian. But Norway's occupied at this point, so how do they recruit these Norwegian commandos? Are these commandos special forces that are already back as part of a free Norwegian army in the UK? Very much so. Many of them were Norwegian army veterans who had been part of the initial resistance to Nazi invasion and who fled to England and then had been regrouped in order to form, as you were saying, a free Norwegian army. The company Linga was sort of the core, the commando core of that group. Others had come afterwards, too, had been involved in Norwegian resistance activities and had found ways to get across the North Sea and to take refuge in England, and also to bring the most up-to-date information about what was happening. But but Knut Hauklid, who is, I think, probably the best known of the commando group, partly because his book about skis against the atom, which is his first-hand account of being part of the FOMARC operation, is the most readable and the most detailed about this. He himself had come over, was originally from America. His father had been an engineer working on the building of the New York subway system in Manhattan, as a matter of fact, and had family still in Norway, of course. But it was, as you say, it was those skills that these young men had of living in Norway, of skiing, of mountain climbing, of finding food where a non-Norwegian or non-Scandinavian would not find any food whatsoever, 
of, if necessary, living on melted snow for days at a time, if necessary. That's the kind of hardy group that you needed in order to carry out an operation like this. And in the end, as I explain in the book, they formed up into two groups, one group who would establish a permanent base up on the plateau overlooking Vermark and the facilities there, and then the others who would go in two groups into the Vermark facility in order to shut it down and to blow up the heavy water. And all of these skills come in handy, don't they? These abilities to rock climb, to survive in harsh conditions. Tell us how this mission plays out. Well, what ultimately happens is that the group who have established the base camp, their next group parachutes in with the plans for a demolition operation at Fermark. They then have to creep down at night into the Fermark facilities. It's like something out of an Alistair McLean novel. In fact, when you come right down to it, there's the one that they made the famous movie with Richard Burton, where Eagles Dare is really derived from the operation against Fermark. And they managed to elude German sentries, creep their way into the facility, plant the bombs to set off the detonation, and um, then waited for the detonation to go off so they could escape, you know, in the resulting confusion. And then nothing happens. It was an enormous disappointment for them to realize this. What happens to the bomb exploded? They had to get out of there. Well, it turned out, as I explained in the book, that in fact, the detonation had taken place. It did interrupt for a period of time, the flow of heavy water out of the Vermont facility. But what it really did, unfortunately, in these cases, is it alerted the Germans that something was up, that someone was trying to figure out why the Germans were so interested in the heavy water facility, why the Germans were sending shiploads and truckloads of heavy water back to Germany from there. And so the initial raid, although it does have an effect and retards the progress for the Germans in using the heavy water for their nuclear program, what it really does now is to precipitate a massive manhunt for the commandos, but also, too, for those who have been supporting them and cooperating with them. And so from that point on, really for the next year and a half, the Norwegian commandos operating there deep in the wilderness are not only having to survive the freezing sub-zero conditions you know, for months at a time with very little food and very little contact with what's going on in the outside world, they're also having to elude Nazi patrols by the Norwegian collaborationist militia and others at the same time. It's an incredibly harrowing story of how that small group of men were able to not just survive the conditions, but also survive when they're being looked for and sought out. Every day you don't know when a Nazi patrol might stumble on your snowshoe tracks or on your ski tracks and find their way back to your base. So they managed to scale cliffs, cross bridges, evade Nazi detection, go into the lower levels of Vermork, place a bomb, blow it up, then retreat from that area. And I know from reading some of the personal memoirs of this that they were littered with minefields, evade the minefields and get out of there. But then there's no get-out plan for them. Is this not something that the British should plan for? Was the aim originally for them to just disappear into the wilderness? Disappear into the wilderness and eventually find their way out. These are intrepid Norwegians. They'll figure out how to get to Sweden from here. They'll figure out how to do this. 
But no, the original base camp were simply left there. I think in the end, I don't think the British really thought this was going to work. I think there was a sense that there was no need for an exit plan because no one was going to get out alive. And the fact that they did and you know, scaled these thousands of feet mountains down to safety is itself an incredible story. It's the kind of thing which the only parallel we can think about is polar expeditions in the age of uh, Raoul Amundsen or Shackleton or people of that caliber. But this problem still remains what to do about the heavy water. And that's when, as we were talking earlier, that's when they turned to the airborne option of trying to bomb their Formark facility into shutting down completely. And that turns out to be a fiasco as well. It doesn't work very well, does it? Because you've got the heavy water production in the basement of these places. And so if you're bombing the kind of superficial concrete exterior, it's not really going to do too much. No, and as you know, in World War II, strategic bombing and tactical bombing is not precision bombing. Despite the Americans' best attempts at precision bombing and the Norden bombsite and everything else, but we both know it was almost worse than useless. Oh, worse than useless, and bombs drop where they go, not where you want them to go. So one of the end results of the air campaign to knock out for Mark was actually killing lots of Norwegian civilians and doing a lot of property damage, but doing nothing to interrupt the actual heavy water export to Germany. And that was one of the reasons why the heroes of Telemark wanted to do their mission, right? Was to avoid that heavy bombing campaign that would create a larger chance of civilian death and casualties. Do they ever make it to Sweden? How does their story end? Well, some of them do manage to finally make it down, crossing this incredible wilderness of forest and mountain and manage to get into Sweden. Some are captured, but by and large, it's one in which... uh, the story is that it's every man for himself in small groups making their way to safety and not being able to be rescued by any kind of larger paramilitary or operation in any sense. The other tightrope that they have to walk here is reprisals against Norwegian civilians who have been identified as cooperating with the commandos. And in the case of Knut Hauklid, his own father was rounded up and tortured and executed. What a terrible price to pay, you know, where you have to weigh in the balance, on the one hand, the survival of civilization if the Nazis get the bomb first, and then on the other hand, of your own family and the cost to friends and neighbors if they're caught by the SS or caught by the government in the process. It had to have added an extra psychological burden to the burden that already exists of trying to survive in that kind of climate, knowing that you're a hunted man and that the possibility of capture means almost certain execution or torture in order to find out who else is part of your band. It's it's an incredible story of not just human endeavor in a physical sense, but also, I think, in a psychological sense of how these men managed to remain sane is, I think, a tribute not just to them individually, but I think it's also a tribute to the Viking heart, to the sense that, again, that undertaking these incredible risks right, under these unspeakable conditions, that at the same time, there was a feeling that what you're doing is not only important to the group, but is also, in a sense, an extension of the values of that group, right? This is not something that you're taking on because you're insane or that you're doing for your own sake. That those who are working with that sense of trust, right, the same sense of trust that permeated life on a Viking longship, 
that permeates a Danish uh, neighbors to the point of leaving their prams out in the cold while they go in to the pub to refresh themselves, right? That same sense of trust that gives you the psychological lift that enables you to endure that kind of situation. I don't really know what other nations would have been able to undertake something along those lines. I think that's, that's the ultimate question we've got to ask ourselves, James, is not just the fact that they were able to undertake this incredible mission, but who could have done something like that and then come out of it like, you know, get back to normal life. That's the other extraordinary part of it too, you know, that those who did survive, those who were who went on to be decorated and treated as the heroes of Telemark, went back to normal civilian life, found uh, new careers for themselves and moved on from it. It's really a tribute to how strong the Viking heart can really be, not just in extraordinary situations, but also in the transition away from that kind of incredible stress and that kind of incredible experience. Well, there's a line in your book where it says about being Scandinavian. It's about daring to reach for more than the universe has gifted you, no matter the odds and the obstacles. And I think we can certainly say that about the heroes of Telemark and about the impact they had on the Second World War. I mean, just the persistent annoyance it must have been for Hitler to have his heavy water consistently targeted throughout those stages of the war really would have hampered the production of nuclear weapons. And of course, then to bring this full circle, who knows how the Second World War would have ended? Who knows if the Americans would have got the bomb first? And well, after that, Herman Kahn certainly wouldn't have had a job and you wouldn't have a job in the Hudson Institute today. And I wouldn't have a job here in Denmark or it'd probably be a, a very different job indeed. The what-ifs are really unimaginable if the Germans had. And of course, there is, as you may know, and as your listeners may know, there's considerable controversy about just how far along the German nuclear program was. There's lots of indications that the work that they were doing, the model that they were using for a controlled fission reaction was probably a dead end. It probably would have taken years to work towards a final workable solution, given the limitations, not so much of the scientific process, but the industrial processes they had at hand. And at the same time, the fact that those commandos did manage the most significant damage and sabotage they did was to sink the ship, the hydro, as it was crossing the lake from Vermark, which was carrying literally a shipload of heavy water. It was sending that ship to the bottom that really was the, that really interrupted the German heavy water imports from Norway and convinced the Germans it wasn't going to work any longer. They would have to find other sources for it. And in the end, they weren't able to develop the sources that they needed to carry forward the experiments with nuclear fission. But set aside that question. Suppose we set aside the question, were the Germans really close to developing a bomb, and were the Norwegian commando raids really decisive in preventing the Nazis from acquiring the bomb? We can debate that all day. The real issue is what was in people's minds at the time. And there was a tremendous fear, and I know this from my work on the Manhattan Project and the scientists uh, and engineers who were involved in the great unknowns about what the Germans were doing. They knew the program was underway, it was impossible to get a read on how far they had progressed and how close they were coming. I will tell you this, that Arthur Compton, who was one of the key figures in the development of the Manhattan Project, when D-Day took place, June 6, 1944, he describes in his memoirs listening to the radio broadcast describing the Allied landings in Normandy and always being aware of the possibility, the fear 
that those landings might be interrupted by a massive explosion, the use of a super weapon by the Nazis that would destroy completely the Allied Operation Overlord and bring it to an end. The real fear was that any day they would wake up in 1944 through 1945, wake up and find that the Germans had beaten them. So the pressure to have, to find a way to stop that bomb program by any means necessary, even sending bands of intrepid commandos up into the most inhospitable parts of Norway in order to shut down heavy water production at this hydroelectric facility way up in the wilderness there. Didn't seem so far-fetched. It didn't seem like you were taking a tremendous risk. You were willing to try anything to stop that Nazi program from going forward. Arthur, what an, a mind-blowing point to finish on. Tell us, where can we buy the book? Well, it's The Viking Heart is available on Amazon, of course. It's available at uh, Barnes & Noble, which is also Barnes & Noble online. It's one that I think I think your readers will enjoy not just for the discussion about heroes of Telemark, but also about the light that it sheds, both on the Viking Age, because I incorporate a lot of the new archaeological work, including DNA research, on who the Vikings were and where they went and how they lived. But it also sheds light, I think, on modern Scandinavia and an understanding why the Nordic countries are such a unique part of Europe and why they are a very special community and communities which um, despite their linguistic differences and differences in many ways as ethnic groups, Danes and Norwegians and Swedes and Finns are all very different and they don't necessarily always see eye to eye on a lot of issues, but there is a common characteristic there. There is something, a cultural skill set they all exhibit, which my book is really about, as well as of course, the history what my uncle Norman always wanted was a way to tie the story of the Vikings in with their descendants arriving in North America. My uncle Norman isn't with us anymore, but I think he'd be happy with the final result. I hope your readers are too. Well, as they say here in Denmark, Arthur, Tusentak, which means a thousand thank yous, and you are always welcome on the Warfare Podcast. My grandmother would insist, Manga Tusentak, right back to you. <laughs> Wonderful, thanks so much. Thanks, James. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hip. Subscribers get access to blissfully uninterrupted ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War, and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.